This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here. Thank you for joining. Really appreciate the time. Favorite part of my day, every day, 12 Eastern. Three hours of rocking and rolling, truth-telling, truth-sharing, truth-learning when you call in, or maybe we learn together, all of the above. I would like to take some calls today if you want to chat with me, 888-900-3393. And let's get into the latest with Trump. It's weird to watch a president signing executive orders and think to yourself, that's actually a good idea. And we've had some of that today. Trump is making moves. The TPP, the TPP move, Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we have somebody joining later on in the show to break that down for us. This has now become one of those issues that everyone has to talk about, but I think we can all agree, and I I put myself in this camp, We don't know as much about it as we want to. With Obamacare, you can really just focus on what has been implemented and some main points about it. Very few people have read the entirety of the bill. Many, many hundreds of pages. Uh, TPP is also huge. Very few people have read that agreement. Now, it wasn't going to get through the Congress, so people are pointing out that there's some symbolism with Trump removing the U.S. from the agreement, but it wasn't a massive change in terms of the direction of the Trans-Pacific Partnership anyway. But I want to bring somebody on to talk to you about that. Point here being, we'll learn about the TPP later so we can all talk about it with the facts at hand. But Trump is doing a lot of symbolic gestures as well as executive actions that will have a impact down the line. Trump has gotten rid of TPP now. It's no longer going to be a part of the government conversation. He has implemented a hiring freeze on federal workers. This is also fascinating to me. If you look at a chart of, of federal workers, you'd see that we have a lot of them, and they have been, over time, growing. This is now the second of six measures to clean up the corruption and special interest collusion in Washington, D.C., according to uh, Washington Post here. It's part of his 100-day action plan to make America great again. I do think that it's important that there is this focus on the first 100 days for this administration. I know every administration, oh, the first 100 days, what are you going to do in the first 100 days? It's become, uh, it was a meme before we thought of memes, but it has become a period where there's heightened scrutiny. Although that's the way it's framed with most administrations, the scrutiny pretty much stays the same. It's either... 
minimal and laudatory Obama administration or continuous and oppressive and hateful Bush administration. The media scrutiny is something that tends to be very high, regardless of the period of the administration, perhaps until the very end. A hundred days, though, the Trump administration has to show uh, action, has to show improvements, has to be judged by the consequences of the decisions that it makes in the first hundred days. Uh, The proof has to be in the pudding. I think this is true for conservatives. I think this is true for anybody who's open-minded about the administration. And there are a lot of people, as we know, we saw them marching and, whose streets are streets? Yay! Blank grabs back. Well, it's not as good if you have to say blank, but I'm not going to say the P word on air. Uh, But those people don't care. Donald Trump could do things that improve employment prospects in each of their hometowns or cities by leaps and bounds could tackle long-term entitlements could secure the border could defeat radical islam uh, could bring about a an economic boom in this country that whether you are a software designer from silicon valley or a steel worker from the ohio valley uh, you would feel it and, and there are people that still would say that trump is hitler So we have to understand that there is a block out there. I don't know how large the voting block is, but there are tens of millions of Americans who will hate Trump no matter what he does. But for those of us who are at least willing to judge, uh, judge Trump and his administration by what he does and by what happens, what are the results, a results based presidency is the only salvation he's going to have. If he can't get things done and if he begins to turn on promises he made and moves away from everything that he said he would do during the campaign, he'll have conservatives lining up. The never Trump movement within conservatism will grow again. And they'll, of course, be the Democrats who hate him. And the whole thing is going to collapse in on itself. That's why I don't think he's going to sell out. Why? They'll, they'll never bring him back into polite company. The New York Times will never write an editorial about Donald Trump saying what a great man he is. There's no reason for him to sell out. I also do believe that he recognized at some level that he was giving up a lot of autonomy and leisure by becoming president of the United States. When you're a, a billionaire celebrity reality TV show real estate mogul, you tend to do whatever you want. Now he's got to do some stuff. There's a bit more structure in the schedule. Didn't have to do all this. So his initial measures, and I watched this morning on, I always say when I watch it on TV, I'm watching it on my computer because I watch things digitally. But I was watching video of Trump signing executive orders on Keystone XL pipeline, Dakota Access pipeline, on infrastructure projects, removing red tape, saying he's going to put people to work on those projects. I have to say the Keystone XL pipeline, even for the Clintons, was a brazen piece of left wing hypocrisy. Hillary was thinking about it, thinking about it, getting donors, getting donors. And then when she was up against Bernie, she was she was on so many sides of that issue so many times. It was tough to know. You'd have to go by the calendar date and make sure that she hadn't changed her mind since the day before. Because there's no, re- there's no environmental reason to oppose the Keystone XL pipeline 
unless you just think oil bad, oil goes in air, oil ugly, and oil destroy environment, which a lot of people do think that. It's moronic, especially when you know that the oil is going to come out of the ground, whether there's a Keystone XL pipeline or not. One of the great ironies, in fact, of the Obama administration is that there was such an explosion, an energy revolution that occurred while he was in office, despite his best efforts to prevent it. Now, I know that that means people might say, well, shouldn't he get credit for it because presidents get credit for good things, even when they don't deserve the credit, just as they get sometimes, not Obama, credit for bad things, even when they don't deserve it. Doesn't it change the situation or shouldn't we change our thinking on this? Imagine for a moment that the president of the United States was pro-oil, pro-carbon fuel, pro-drilling, pro-pipeline. What could have happened over the last eight years then? If we didn't have somebody who was standing athwart those efforts as much as possible and getting money from these big donors, there's these billionaire donors that are funding a lot of these environmentalist projects. And as we've talked about on this show a while ago, they use cutouts to make it seem like it's gra- they're grassroots funded organizations, but it's oftentimes big money that uh, liberal money that gets fun- that gets sent into one NGO that then acts as a feeder for all these other little NGOs that are all about protecting Mother Earth and stopping the big mean drilling companies and fracking. Oh my gosh, fracking! I have friends, you know, I have friends even from college when they write about fracking on their Facebook pages. They seem to think that fracking is going to kill all of us. I'm not exaggerating. That there's a mass poisoning going on. We're all going to die because of fracking. Meanwhile, a lot of countries, they wish they had problems like thinking about fracking. The world we live in, the economy that we rely on, and everything that powers our industry relies upon carbon energy. Without that, it all comes to a screeching halt. This whole green... Anyway, I know I'm getting a little on a tangent here, but Trump signed Keystone Access, a Keystone uh, Keystone XL pipeline. He signed the Dakota Access pipeline. He's doing the things that many of us that weren't necessarily fans of his style during the primary and even in the general. He's doing the things that he said he would do. So far, a couple of digressions from that or a couple of diversions from that uh, deferred access. I mean, sorry, deferred arrivals, the DACA program that looks like it's going to stay in place. That looks like Trump is going to take a tiered approach bit by bit to immigration. Now, many of us have been advocating that all along, and we knew that Trump wasn't just going to come in and become a lean, mean deportation machine across the board. But he is going to deport criminals. Well, that alone is a change in policy, a change in posture from the previous administration, and a positive one. So we should be happy about that. The freeze on federal government employees, that's also a good thing. How are you going to stop and assess your needs as a federal government when you're just constantly hiring and bringing on more and more and more. Those federal employees are expensive. Staffers are expensive. I know all about this. This is one of the reasons why the government started turning 
to federal contractors on the private sector to fill a lot of federal government roles. Then they realize that gets expensive too. But the things that Trump is doing, has done, are in many cases positive. These are the things we wanted to see him doing in the first place. I see here the uh, Daily Mail. The new White House website begins with English only. As, as they're nixing all Spanish language content. English is the language of America. Speak American. English is the language of America. This should not be controversial. This should not be difficult. These are small steps. I know he's got to deal with Obamacare. There's a, these are the things that we wanted to see him do. If Trump keeps doing and if he keeps taking actions that as a conservative I like, I'm also more inclined to care less when he does things like engage in a petty argument over the size of the inauguration crowd. That's a it's a personality quirk. You could say deficiency that Trump seems to have. I don't really care, though, and I don't know if any of us should care that much about that stuff. And I know the media is going to want to focus more on that because some of the stuff that Trump is up to right now will bear fruit relatively quickly and ultimately don't we just want somebody who's in the white house who's making good decisions who's benefiting the american people who's doing things that improve our lives or at least make the government less capable of disrupting and ruining our lives that's that's progress that's positive I am seeing action. I am seeing movement from this White House that is encouraging. I know it is very early. It's the first minute of the first quarter of a very long game. I get that. But we should be fair. The same way that I will tell you when I think there are bizarre things that the administration's fixated on, when I wake up in the morning and I see him signing Keystone Access Pipeline, Dakota Access Pipeline, putting forth an executive order to pull back red tape on infrastructure, saying that they want the pipeline to be manufactured in this country. And I know that, that there will be those who say, well, this isn't, this isn't totally free market or this isn't totally conservative. At least it's sensible. On balance, you can criticize some aspects of it, but it's, dare I say, progress, a word that has been so hijacked by the left that as I say it, I choke on it. It is forward movement. It is advancing the ball downfield. The media is not going to like this. The media is not going to like it when there are actions taken by this White House, like English language only on the website. Who wants to who wants to take a, a bet right now that if they poll the American people and they should, and I'm assuming there'll be some poll of this as to whether they agree that the White House website should just be in English or not. Not all, but a majority of Americans are going to say, yeah, they're going to like it. They're going to like it. They agree. English is the language of this country. I hope Congress passes a law saying that English is the official language of this country. I think we should be doubling down on this. I don't want uh, signs in all these different languages all over the country. This isn't Quebec. Oh, oui, bien sûr, monsieur. My name is Pierre. No. I don't like when I go in to vote and there's, I can't even count how many different languages there were on the ballot. In New York, there's a bunch. It's not the way it's supposed to be. 
English language website, Speak American. I like it. I like what the Trump administration has done in the last 24 hours. There's some other stuff that's a little weird. We'll talk about that, too, because you know what we do here, team, in the Freedom Hut? We keep it real. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show Only on the Blaze Radio Network It's a sad cultural commentary in this country But comedians have become cowards Not all of them, obviously But most of them Cowards Wimps, absolute wimps, yellow-bellied wimps. And the latest uh, you see with both, I have to say, as a side note here, the the Trump son tweet that came out from that SNL writer was horrible, suspended indefinitely. But I'm not part of the outrage mob that wants everyone to get fired. All right, they suspended her. They should bring her back. It was a terrible thing to say. She's been publicly humiliated for or t- to tweet, right? She's been publicly humiliated. But I do think people should get a second. I think people should get at least a second chance. So, and I know some some conservatives are very mad. Oh, what she said. No, what she said. I was one of the first ones. I couldn't believe. But by the way, nobody could believe how stupid and, and gross it was. The left wasn't even pretending to defend that one. There, there are lines and mocking a 10-year-old. That's for everybody. That's the line. And it's also a great litmus test. Anybody who would, even for a second add and pretend that there's levity in that situation is just an idiot and despicable so it's in a sense useful when those try when those it's almost like a trial balloon or it it is a uh, a little examination that's thrown out there everybody who doesn't immediately say this this is terrible whoa Uh, but the latest instance of of and i so i just wanted to say that whenever i see somebody who does something really stupid in terms of what they write or what they say on tv you know in public I believe in I believe in second chances, and I do not believe that everyone should get fired. Fired of the left always wants conservatives to get fired for everything. I mean, the left wants conservatives to get fired for, you know, for sneezing. Um, but I I refuse to be a part of the of that outrage mob. You shouldn't always get fired for what you say. And people are saying Madonna should get a visit from the Secret Service. Okay, yeah, she should for the sake of. I don't think she will, by the way, but for, for the sake of consistency, maybe she get a visit. But just understand, they're going to come in and be like, all right, you know, Ms. whatever your actual name is, I forget. It's like Madonna, Louise, Madonna, blah, blah, blah something or other. Um, latest comedian that's a coward and is not funny, Chelsea Handler. Is that her name? Yeah, Handler, who says she won't have Melania Trump on her show because she barely speaks English. This uh, immigrant shaming, isn't it interesting? That if you're a a white immigrant, the left doesn't seem to think that you're an immigrant. 
that doesn't count. You're not part of the American dream anymore. And tell that to very to some really poor countries that have sent us a lot of really great immigrants. Eastern European countries I'm thinking of specifically. And Melania Trump is being mocked here by Chelsea Handler, who has no academic pedigree to speak of. Not that that matters, but if you're going to start throwing shade at people for their education and linguistic abilities. And, of course, we have some pointing out that you're right. Melania Trump's English isn't perfect, but that's because she speaks French, Italian, German, Slovene and English. So five five languages? Yeah, five languages that she speaks fluently. But she's too she's too dumb to go on Chelsea Handler's comedy show. And also just what a nasty thing to say. And I, I have to take a moment to applaud Ralph Lauren. And I'm really happy the market is applauding Ralph Lauren, as in the stock has been going up, because they dressed Melania and it was a a, a beautiful gown. Not that I'm a fashion critic, but the color was really nice. And Ralph Lauren, as a result, is all bumping its stock. Well, sometimes good deeds do come with good things. All right. Good things. Good stuff, everybody. We've got more coming. We'll be right back. The Bug Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show. Team, we're joined now by Sean Davis. He is co-founder of The Federalist, his latest on thefederalist.com. Mr. Davis, always a pleasure. Always fun to be on. Thanks for having me, Buck. Uh, so let's talk. There's a lot of stuff out there that I wanted to get your take on, Sean. First, though, um, be, we've gone now from fake news, which you've been, you've been tacula- uh, tackling with Herculean flair. Thanks for that. Very well done. Love your piece on the Federalist. We mentioned it here on the air. I don't think we had you on for it because I just saw it. But we we're talking about the left binging on fake news. This is this seems to get lost in 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 the the scrum of opposing voices online and in the media sometimes. But there has there there have been stories pushed in the last few days alone by the media that are just come. They say, "Oh well, it was a mistake." But at some point, aren't they reckless mistakes? And at some point, aren't reckless mistakes just another form of pushing an ideology without having to stop and check and see if it's true? Yeah, so I had some pushback on my piece saying, well, you need to um, uh, you know, delineate between fake news that the person, who knows, uh, person who's pushing it knows is a lie and fake news where somebody just got it wrong. And my response to that is, if it's news and it's not accurate, then it's fake news. And I don't, as a news consumer, personally care whether it's inaccurate because the person who put it out there is deceitful or if it's inaccurate because the person who put it out there is incompetent. All I care about is the end product. And the other thing is that, you know, so many of these mistakes where where we're told it's not deliberate, it sure is weird how they all go in the same direction. I, I would be a lot more forgiving and willing to show some grace if these were evenly distributed mistakes, where half the time they made Democrats look bad and half the time they make Republicans look bad. But they don't. And, and this is the problem that the media just doesn't want to admit that, you know what, y'all are slanted. You don't really know what you're talking about half the time. 
And the only reason you're mad about fake news is because you think you should have monopoly on it. And I have to say that we're going to all get in the heads of the various journalists who are pushing what could accurately be described as as propaganda, because as you point out, the fake news always goes to a certain political narrative. It, it, it always supports one side, supports the left, it detracts from the right or it harms the right in some capacity. And you also see that the mistakes that they make are always the, the mistakes that they make that are obvious and that are blatant are particularly common. Uh, when it is also very damaging to Donald Trump. <laughs> so at, at some point it turns into, well, when are you when are you just now the guy who is using the anonymous tips in your inbox as a journalist as sources for stories as long as they're damaging to Trump? If you're if you're doing that, that would be considered, I think, fake news by anybody under any definition. And they don't seem to be that far away from it, in my estimation. I mean, the, the MLK bust was just unimaginably uh unimaginably ridiculous in terms of how little fact-checking went into that and how many people went with it right away. Oh, it it was amazing. And I don't blame so many uh, journalists, uh, uh, members in good standing, for getting mad about it because it it just kind of shows exactly what their industry was about. The reporter in this instance was in the Oval Office. He was personally there. Other members of the, uh, the White House staff were there, people he could have asked. He could have walked about this room and looked at every inch. But no, he didn't. He peered in a couple places, it would appear, uh, didn't see the MLK bust, and then decided uh, to spread that, oh, goodness, uh, Donald Trump, who's probably a racist, you know, uh, you know, he's the guy who threw the first black president out of the White House. Um, Donald Trump removed the MLK bust. And then he wants to come back after that, after refusing to ask anyone on the White House, hey, was that still there? Did I just miss it? He wants to come back and say, oh, no, it was just an innocent mistake. No, it wasn't. It was a story that he thought was so good, he wanted to go with it as soon as possible. I mean, let's also unpack for a moment. The Trump administration would do that and think that people wouldn't freak out about it, right? <laughs> this is because we all know with the Churchill bus with Obama, and they actually did remove it. And, uh, the, the, the Trump team thought that they would pull the MLK bust out of office as one of the first things, and and no, and it was just like an NBD, you know, who cares situation. That's that's what they think of the Trump team. I mean, they may not like the Trump team, but that's even a level beyond what any normal reporter would think is is possible. I, I would assume. No, it's classic projection. Um, they are projecting onto Trump really their their own uh, of lack of perspective and foresight. And, and keep in mind that the reporter's excuse in this uh, for getting it wrong was it was obscured by an agent and a door. I'm sorry. If you can't figure out if something is in a round room because a door got in your way, you're too stupid to have a byline. Totally agree with you. All right, I want to move from fake news, although I really enjoyed your piece on thefederalist.com, specifically taking people to task in the media for fake news, to fake science. There is a piece in The Atlantic, How Ultrasound Became Political. The technology has been used to create sped-up videos that falsely depict a response to stimulus. In this piece, it is asserted that babies don't have a heartbeat. Sean responds on thefederalist.com, abortion science, heartbeats are imaginary, unborn babies aren't alive, and ultrasounds are just tools of the patriarchy. Sean, uh, the Atlantic has just lost its mind, has embraced fake science. What's going on? Well, so it's interesting. The headline you just read was not the original headline, and uh, they, they stealth edited the headline 
and oh, did a, they? And a bunch of bunch of stuff in there. The original headline was "Ultrasounds Push the Idea that a Fetus is a Person," which I guess. Oh my gosh! I didn't even. I yeah. mean, I'd seen all the all the fury over this, Sean. That, that's this Atlantic. That's so slimy. Oh. Yeah. And then they took out their claim that heartbeats are imaginary. By the way, ultrasounds show that a fetus is a person in the same way that a thermometer shows it's cold outside in January. I mean, so it, it, it's not even as a matter of science. It's just stupid as a matter of literature. They also self-edited out their claim that a fetal heartbeat is imaginary. They removed the uh, fictitious claim that a baby does not have a heartbeat at six weeks, which was the essence of the entire piece. Uh, it, it, it's you know inarguable um, that based on what we know now, you can detect a heartbeat at four weeks. Uh, and it was basically just a long screed um, from a woman who is outraged that people have the audacity to look at an ultrasound and look at a sonogram and say, you know what, that captures the baby inside the mommy's tummy. That simple fact infuriates them. How could a, a place that fancies itself in the upper echelons of, of journalism and, and intellectualism, uh, like the Atlantic, how do you think they could publish something that's so forget about uh horrific and and really borderline satanic but side note um i mean that's never a side note but we'll just put that we can put that as a given for now but so obviously stupid this sort of reminds me of the fake news controversies that come up because this is just unthinkably dumb but I guess that's how just like the left hates Trump so much that they'll write the MLK bust. They just pulled it out uh, because they can't help themselves. This is the, you know going with the same thing on fake science. They hate the pro-life movement so much that they will and they love abortion so much that they'll write a piece that says that there's no baby heartbeat as though that's a, a debatable proposition. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the interesting thing, the whole thrust of the piece is, is this author was mad that there are uh, that there's popping up all over the country state laws um, to uh, prohibit abortion after an unborn baby's heartbeat is detected. So this author, who, by the way, founded Logic magazine, that's not a joke. That, that's that's real news. That's not fake news. This author apparently decided, oh, well, I know how to get around that. I'll just claim that a baby doesn't have a heartbeat, an actual sentence. That appeared in that article was, what is a fetal heartbeat, and why does it even matter? I mean, that's, that's a real mystery, why somebody would think the existence of a heartbeat would matter for determining whether something is alive or not. Total puzzle right there. I got to say, it reminds me of in, in Parks and Recreation, a show that I like a lot, uh, even though it has some political undertones that are annoying. Uh, it, it is very funny and well-written, and there's a group of cult, uh, cult followers or a cult that are end of days, you know, this is every year they think the world's going to end and they call themselves the reasonableists because that would th you know, that throws people off. It's actually kind of a brilliant idea. Uh, this guy founding Logic Magazine, I feel like is the same thing. If you're going to say insane, crazy, obviously disprovable, disprovable things, you want to be the founder of Logic Magazine. Yeah, and, and, and the real issue here that was just so obvious throughout the entire piece is that the people who say these crazy things they know they're full of it. We know they're full of it. They know that we know they're full of it. What they are engaged in is a rhetorical, euphemistic battle to rationalize the unnecessary, voluntary killing of a healthy, viable, precious human being. And they somehow think that, oh, if you call it a fetus and not an unborn baby, then somehow that uh, eliminates the humanity 
uh, of the thing you're trying to kill. Now, as a society, we've seen how this works because we watched how uh, an entire group of people early in our history decided that a, another group of people were property and therefore not human, and therefore you could do whatever you wanted to them. So this, this attempt from the abortion activist crowd and from the abortion industry to dehumanize in the hopes that it will make it easier for you to kill your unborn baby is nothing new. It's nothing remarkable, and it, it's actually pretty blatant and obvious and sad. Sean, I, I know we're putting you on the spot here because we didn't uh, prep for this beforehand, but do you, can we keep you through the break and talk to you on the other side about some Trump transition stuff real quick? Do you have a minute? Yeah, let's go for okay, it. Okay, great. We got Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist. Thefederalist.com is the website. He is at Sean, S-E-A-N-M-D-A-V on Twitter. We're going to keep him through. We're going to talk about some Trump-tastic Trump Trumpiness, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist, is with us. Sean, thank you for staying with us for another segment here. I wanted to get your take on Betsy DeVos and the hoops the administration is, I mean, the uh, rather, the hoops she's being forced to jump through by the Senate. Uh, she's the one that they, they seem to have a particular dislike for DeVos. What's going on? Uh, it, it's really interesting. So um, from what I have read uh, on the issue, when Obama nominated his uh, uh people for secretary of education. I think both of them had a total of 109 questions that were posed to them um, by Senate Democrats. I believe that as of today, uh, DeVos has been peppered with a request for her to answer 1,379 questions. Um, So we're looking at, you know, more than a 10 X, a 13 X difference in what they're expecting of a Republican nominee versus what they expected from a Democrat nominee. And I think the reason for that, to really understand it, you have to look at Scott Walker. I think DeVos is probably viewed by teachers unions the same way the unions viewed um, Walker in Wisconsin. Because she uh, supports school choice, because she believes that education um, exists as a way to teach children about things rather than a, as a means of giving jobs to adults, um, she is a direct threat to them. Re- remember, the, the NEA uh, it's a teacher's union. It's not a student's union. Uh, it is not comprised of children who want to get better educations. It's comprised of teachers who need jobs. And so when she comes in and threatens that monopoly, they're going to go to war with her, and that's what they've done. Any surprises uh, in, in your mind as to the people, uh, the uh, various appointees that the Trump administration has put forward getting through for cabinet positions? Has that gone more or less as expected? The Chuck Schumer exchange, by the way, with Tom uh, with Tom Cotton, Senator Cotton, I heard it went something on the lines of Schumer said to Cotton, uh, this has to do with no up or down vote for uh, um, uh, Pompeo. They delayed it. Schumer delayed it despite making a promise. Did you see this? And Tom Cotton... Oh, yeah. Was told by by Schumer, you know, well, you know, well, you were in the Senate eight years ago, and Tom Cotton's like, I was getting my butt shot off in Afghanistan. Why don't you shut your face? That I heard, by the way, it was even it was even saucier than that, but it was more or less that was the exchange. So it, I I've, I have been surprised by a couple things with um, Trump's cabinet picks. The the normal thing that happens is the opposition party they'll they'll kind of whine and moan about everyone, but they'll pick one person they will target all of their ire and all of their firepower on one person, and they will do their best to get one scalp. 
knowing they can't stop everyone, certainly when they're uh, in the minority uh, in the Senate, knowing they can't stop everyone, they'll usually try and concentrate their firepower on one person as a show of strength to prove that they're still relevant. And the Democrats have not done that. They've been running around with their hair on fire, shooting off in every direction possible. Um, it, it's, it's been interesting to me. You know, everyone they don't like is Hitler and everyone they don't like is a fascist. It's kind of how they've uh, seem to have approached these cabinet nominees. They're freaking out about all of them. And to be honest, I think it's really hampering their ability to be a credible opposition to Trump when they go out screaming bloody murder about everybody, uh, every person he throws up. Crying wolf. And I, there was that piece, I forget who wrote it, that made the rounds on the left because it was written by uh, a Democrat or you know a liberal um, that you're still crying wolf. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? It got a lot of play on social media a couple of months ago about how saying that Mitt Romney was the Antichrist means that now when you've got Trump and you want to say that, you know, he's really the like no one wants to hear it. I think that's true with the nominees. The Trump administration's put they're complaining about so much that none of their complaints register with fair minded people at this point. Right. And it's the same problem that the mainstream media has, too. They're freaking out about so much stupid stuff about crowd sizes, about the bust, about meh, 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 that when it actually comes time to talk about something that matters, something that people uh, who don't have a J school degree actually care about, the media will have been tuned out already. I mean, it, it, you really have to, in politics, um, pick a few things that are going to be your priorities and then focus on them. Not everything can be the worst thing ever in the beginning of the end of the world, but to watch the Democrats and watch the media cover Trump, you'd think every single breath he takes um, just you know, brings down 10 minutes off the doomsday clock. Yeah, their, their, their hatred oozes out of every pore and, and everything coming out of their pen, so to speak, is just one screed after another against all things Trump. Sean Davis, our friend from The Federalist, he's co-founder there. Go to thefederalist.com for his latest. And if you're not following him on Twitter, you're missing out. Sean M. Dav, D-A-V. Sean, great to have you, my friend. Thanks for making the time. Thank you, Buck. Have a great day. You too. Uh, team, we'll be back. Hour two, much more. Stay with me. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hub. We are joined now by Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist and a Fox News contributor. He's got a whole bunch of pieces here on the Post and Fox News we're going to talk about. Michael, appreciate you calling in. Uh, my pleasure, Buck. Let's start with how Trump should handle Comey and the FBI, your piece on Fox News. How should he handle it? Well, look, I, I think that uh, the issue of the FBI, he needs to look at it more deeply, and I think he needs to wait until Sessions is confirmed and, and gets his team together there. Because, Buck, I think throughout the government, throughout whether it's the FBI, the CIA, uh, the White House, which is now gone, thankfully. But I think these, these Obama holdovers, uh, there's been an enormous amount of leaking going on of 
what should at least, some of which is classified material and some of, much of which should be confidential material, such as FBI investigations. And when you look at the summer issues uh, that just are still going on, frankly, with these investigations of the Russians and the Trump campaign, how is it that every news organization seemed to be getting information from the FBI about what it was investigating, uh, whether it was General Flynn, whether it was a, a Trump trip to Moscow. Uh, all of these things, things seem to have been known to the news media, uh, and they really could have changed the election. And something was going on there. There is a tremendous amount of leaking of information. And look, uh, as a journalist, you know, I have benefited from government leaks from time to time in my career. But we're talking here about information that could have changed the presidential election. Who was leaking that and why? And so I think before Trump makes any commitments to anybody in those areas, this needs to be sorted out because this was a real breakdown of not just tradition and protocol, but of real ethics. And perhaps and I, I would agree with you, Michael. And as somebody, I had a TS uh, TS clearance for for many years, and I still remember the background investigation process. And they talked; to, they were wandering around. There were people in suits wandering around my college campus, wandering around my hometown, other places that I had lived, asking neighbors, asking just you know, people who may have known me uh, in in a, in a pretty vague way anything about me that goes into a file now that's not necessarily used as derogatory information against me for the clearance process unless it's something that would stop me from getting a clearance and also is verifiable i just want to point out to everybody listening that the the press is running with this assumption that well it's fine to just release uh it's fine to release inf information like flynn's phone call to a russian ambassador uh there are limits to these things. Just because the FBI has looked at something or heard something doesn't mean that it should be publicly disclosed because it has an inherently defamatory effect. The raw FBI files for background investigations, I think, would be a great example of this. Tons of unproven, you know, they ask ex-girlfriends and boyfriends and ex-husbands and wives and that stuff shouldn't be aired publicly by the Bureau. But that seems to me to be the lack of rules that we're seeing here, the lack of ethics with some of the leaks against Trump. Absolutely. And look, I think we should distinguish that when the FBI, say, on the Clinton stuff, went into court uh, for, uh, for authorizations and things like that, and some of this leaked out, that's a different matter when they go into court and there is a public record. But even on Clinton, prior to that, we knew a heck of a lot more about the FBI investigation. Now, some of this, look, not every case is the same. For example, what Clinton was doing, uh, how she publicly lied, I think led to a lot of calls that she be investigated. So it was not so unusual that there was an investigation would be known. But I think we're, we're talking here about other things that, that nobody knew about, saved the FBI, and that they became public anonymous, through anonymous sources, all of which have to trace back to the Justice Department. So I, I think this is a real serious issue. I mean, the same with the IRS, that we know what they did, that certain tax forms were released of conservative groups, that groups were withheld from their getting the proper tax status for political reasons. So you had a corrupting, I believe, of a lot of the government that if it's not going to be uh, 
held to a high standard of, of law, then I think it really erodes even further public trust and public cynicism. So these are big decision, decisions Donald Trump has about these people, and I would hope that he would not just uh, sort of reflexively sign off on keeping people because it's convenient uh, without really knowing the culpability in, at the FBI in particular. Team, we're speaking to Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist. You can read his latest at NewYorkPost.com. Michael, did you see the, the, I really want to call it a rumor, although I guess it's a story because it's been published, it's out there, that they may replace Sean Spicer now because Trump is upset? This, to me, just seems like the kind of rumor-mongering that is just intended to hobble the administration in its earliest days. There's also a piece in the Washington Post about how angry Trump was and all the infighting. I want to know who the source, I mean, I know I can't know, but to me, the sources for this stuff automatically would seem sketchy. Who at the top echelon of the Trump administration is talking to the Post to say bad things about the Trump administration? And given all the stories that have had to be retracted in the Post recently, I look at this with a very skeptical eye. I just wanted your take on on both of those uh, notions, that Spicer may be replaced and that the administration is in disarray at the top levels, according to the Washington Post. Yeah, well, look, the New York Times had a similar story yesterday about uh, aides upset with Trump. I mean, really? I mean, they're, they're going to the New York Times to voice their displeasure? Well, I mean, I don't think the Times, as bad as it is these days, I don't think they're making these things up out of whole cloth. So somebody is clearly talking. Now, look, I, I, I did consider this yesterday, Buck, and it may be that this is the this is the way this administration is going to work, that to get the president's attention as to how serious something is, it has to become public. Um, it has been said of Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, that he doesn't know anything until he reads it in the papers. Um, it may well be that, that Donald Trump, this is how Kellyanne Conway and others, remember during the, uh, during the transition where she was out there openly mocking uh, the idea that Mitt Romney would be secretary of state. It looked like she was going rogue, uh, but maybe that is how Trump gets his information. I don't know. It, we're very early in all this. It's hard to figure out what is, what is true and what, what really is just the opening uh, salvo. But I do think there has got to be a tighter ship, not just in the White House in the beginning, but, but also in all these agencies. So it is a big issue that... Uh, Trump is going to need an enforcer. Somebody in-house is going to have to ride herd on this stuff, and heads are going to have to roll if people are, are violating this, because there is a level of confidence. If the, if the president cannot talk to his aides without reading about it the next day, that's something you see when an administration, whether it's a mayor or a president, is sinking, not when their first day in office. Uh, Kellyanne Conway spoke to this issue. I wanted to get your reaction to it, uh, Michael. Let's just play that clip. Kellyanne Conway with the media saying they're not being reporters. Play it. His inaugural speech was uplifting. It was unifying. He said, our brown and black and white soldiers all bleed the Patriots' red red blood. Mm -hmm. He said that if you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. Now, if people want to scoff at that and dismiss it, that's on them. And if they want to call themselves journalists and reporters, they ought to think about what they're really doing. If they snark, if they roll their eyes, if their Twitter feed is filled with a 92% anti-Trump screed, they're not being reporters. They're being opinion columnists. They're being 
professional political hacks and pundits. And we have a right to call that out. What do you think about that, Michael? Completely agree. Uh, I mean, I, it has been a favorite topic of mine. And I, and I don't think, uh, but that a lot of uh, readers or, or, or non-readers anymore of newspapers understand the difference that uh, reporters, straight news reporters, are supposed to report the news straight. They're not supposed to tilt it. Uh, opinion columnists are entitled to their opinion. That's what they're hired for. Uh, but they've also can't ignore the facts and can't create facts. So I think she's on solid ground. Uh, this has been an issue throughout the campaign. I mean, you look at the headlines on the New York Times front page and the Washington Post. All of those are opinion pieces in what should be straight news spots in the paper. There are not supposed to be opinion pieces on the front page, but they are there every day, and they have been for, for virtually the last year when it comes to Donald Trump. Everything he does is seen, uh, is judged to be bad. That's an My opinion. Michael, I want to ask you, and we'll, we'll, we'll give you one last one here, and I, you've given us a lot of time today. We appreciate it. It's Michael Goodwin, everybody, of the, of the New York Post. The media lost a lot of credibility when it comes to objectivity over the course of this last election. The anti-Trump hatred from, as you point out, the front pages, the news sections of major papers and from the news broadcasts of major networks, including you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, seemed so anti-Trump and so obviously so that some were, were thinking there might be a correction. There might be an effort to go back to the center. I haven't seen that at all. I've seen a doubling down against Trump. I just wanted, as, as a veteran journalist, your opinion as to whether you think, is that subconscious or do you think they've just made the decision, no, we are the anti-Trump resistance. We're just going to own it. Uh, that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, uh, I think that there is in this a – we shouldn't discount the personal. You know, Tip O'Neill's great line that all politics are local. Uh, I think a lot of journalism is personal, and a lot of these people don't like Trump. It's mutual, but they don't have the privilege of sneering at him and condemning him in, if they are just news writers news reporters and and even as columnists it should not be a personal issue and but unfortunately it is because you see it in the contrast uh, of today's reports out of the white house i think the most significant event of yesterday uh if you, in a purely political sense but also looking forward to trump's administration was his meeting with the union leaders who all cheered him for pulling out of the tpp uh, and who came out of there and said it was an incredible meeting. They are excited about it. They are looking forward to working with him to putting American men and women back at work. Now, every one of these union leaders endorsed Hillary Clinton. But there they were with the president acting as though he's the president now, and he's going to do things that are good for us, our members, and we are with him on those things. Now, that seems to me to be a huge event but you will be hard-pressed to find that in the media today. That got second, third, tenth fiddle because it wasn't, it didn't fit, as Kellyanne Conway and Sean Spicer have said, the narrative of the media, which is Trump is bad, Trump is evil, Trump is no good, anything he does, we must condemn it. So when he does something good, they, they can't condemn it, they have to hide it. That's the nature of the beast.
Michael Goodwin is a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. You can read his latest. Don't believe the tweets. Trump is one cool customer and Trump punches establishment right out of the gate. Both on NewYorkPost.com. Michael, thank you so much. My pleasure, Buck. Thank you. Team, we'll be back right after this break. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at TheBlaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. You are listening to the Buck Sexton Show. All right, we got a call in from John. What's up, John? Hello? Yes, sir. You're on radio. Everyone can hear. What's up? Oh, okay. I was listening to you for a while on the speakerphone. That's why I didn't want to. uh... I didn't know if I was talking to you yet. Okay. Yeah, I like those last two guys you had on. They pretty much made the point I wanted to make. But uh, you said something yesterday about, like, be kind of being pushed into the Trump bunker. Uh, I don't think Trump's ever really been in the bunker. I mean, I think the rest of the country that, you know, is not the crazy part anyway. As the ones, you know, I own a business. I have a pond on my property. I own guns. And, you know, I've, we've been getting attacked for the last uh, however many eight years Obama's been in office every which way, you know, trying to deal with Obamacare in my business and try to deal with, yeah, and you turn on the news and like they were saying, it's, you know, if it's not just a little slanted all the time, it's out where, you know, if they really need to destroy somebody, they'll go out and, and do it. And they do it in such a way that it's not like mono or mono, they come here, they pass some law to charge you $100,000 a day because you because you, your pond doesn't run off the right way or something. They go after your business and they, you know, they make rules that put you out of business. Uh, stupid rule that you haven't had five bathrooms for everybody. And all, just dumb stuff. But, you know, I, th- I think I think Trump is, uh, I think he's brought uh, most of us out of our bunkers. I think he's riding the lead tank into uh, D.C., and people are actually following him. And they and they see this stuff, and they, 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 they've gotten madder and madder through the years. About so, I mean, are, are you in the bunker with me, John, or I'm not really, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm kind of like poking around, like taking a look at the bunker. I'm not sure I'm, I'm setting up shop there, but I'm just saying I feel increasingly like I want, I, increasingly like I have to hop into the trenches with Team Trump because the other side's just not playing fair and they're trying to take all of us out. I mean, they're trying to take out conservatism along with Trumpism and they will stop at nothing. And the media has just, they've just lost their minds. They have lost their collective minds over the Trump administration. They have, and and like I said, they've been and they've been pushing the, uh, that left wing agenda for a long time. And I I'd like to, I like some of the stuff he's doing. Like I I can see you calling in to a White House briefing on Skype someday instead of having CNN. I turn on I, every morning. I watch a little bit of CNN, a little bit of MSNBC, and a little bit of uh, Fox News. And it's just amazing. I mean, all they're talking about on CNN is how somebody might have standing to sue Trump on like the first day in office about something. Oh, the emolu- the emoluments clause. Oh, they, they they couldn't get else. Comey on the Hatch Act, and they couldn't get uh, they couldn't get Flynn on the Logan Act. So now they might get Trump on the Emoluments Clause. I mean, it's just pathetic. They're citing law, they're citing laws that nobody even really knows if they're laws or if they would if they would survive. I mean, the Hatch Act is, but the other ones haven't even been used. They wouldn't survive constitutional scrutiny. The Logan Act wouldn't, and the Emoluments Clause. <laughs> it's not applicable here. So yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's just it's not exactly. Oh God, that's all I can say. I mean, it's just, I'm just glad 
somebody's trying to do something. I don't know that he'll do everything I think he should do, but I, I, I really think that people are are coming, you know, they're coming out, they're realizing that now I can actually speak my mind a little bit without, you know, having, you know, people jumping on me and nobody to support me or come up behind me and, uh, you know, help me out. I, I think that's I think that's a lot of the reason why he got elected in the first place. People just got tired right. of the pilot. I hear you, man. Off. John, thank you for calling in, buddy. We're going to head into a break here, but Shields High, appreciate it. Uh, here is, you guys, so you've got a, if you mentioned the emoluments clause, I don't think I've brought it up yet on the show. So there's a lawsuit underway that some liberal group, you know, this is how liberals just love to sue over everything. I mean, they, they sue for the purpose of suing a lot of the time. That's the difference. Yeah, Republicans use the courts, too, but liberals will sue when they have no, no prayer of winning. Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Oh, what a, what a nice little name they have. Uh, it's a, they say that the clause that prohibits Trump-owned businesses from accepting pay, They say the clause, rather, prohibits, prohibits Trump-owned businesses from accepting payments from foreign governments so this would mean as a side note that any anybody who was part of any global corporation and then wanted to run for office and owned any shares in that corporation you could argue would be barred from holding public office i mean the private sector is just not really a place you're going to get any politicians from which is not a good idea um so the emoluments clause is from Article One of the Constitution. Note, here's, I'm going to read it to you so you got it. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. All right, well, he's not accepting a, a, a title or an office from a foreign state, despite them saying that he's a KGB agent and whatever, even though the KGB doesn't exist anymore. The people who come up with these theories don't care about reality. Uh, but ex- presence for the, for the record, the president does accept little gifts. So there are some there are some exceptions to this. What they're saying is a foreign government can't buy you off or make you a prince or a king while you're president. No one's buying Trump off and he's resigning from his company and his children are going to be running it. There, it's just not, there's no way. Uh, the Washington Post says it's uncertain if Trump is violating the emoluments clause. Uh, their logic is the clause prohibits Trump from taking any money at all from a foreign state. So that includes services rendered. Yeah, so that means you can't be an in international business. Ridiculous. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Among the things that President Trump is tackling his first days in office, manufacturing, automakers, made in America. Uh, We've talked a bit about Trump's projections for what he can do for the economy. Uh, He spoke about America first in uh, in his inaugural address. I think it's so interesting. People always like to go back to Lindbergh and they, they inherently or they automatically want to suggest that America America First has the anti-Semitic tinge of the America First uh, America First movement in World War II. Can't we, Trump, I, I believe, is trying to take back America First just because that's a good way to say things. <laughs> he has no... When Trump says America First, he, he does not mean, and it is not a dog whistle, and there's no reason to believe otherwise, that he's trying to bring back the America First 
non-interventionist pacifism of the Second World War that was trying to keep us out of that war. And it was a group that, yes, did have some prominent anti-Semites, although, you know, Woodrow Wilson was a huge anti-Semite. I mean, there's a lot of anti-Semites uh, back in the day that were not pushed out of the public view. So it's not surprising that some large that some large political group, I think it had 600,000 people that were members of it uh, back in the day. I, I, from what I read, I'm doing this off the cuff, as you know. But America first for Trump just means America first, means a prioritization of the American people, American citizens, uh, their rights, their prosperity, their future, their livelihoods. And part of that is to bring some manufacturing back to this country. Now, there's manufacturing that's never coming back. I know a thing or two from friends of mine who work in, for example, the fashion industry, that you're just not going to have, unless you're going to have full automation and a government that is involved in the supply chain, and you're not going to have a huge return of the textile industry to America because wages are just cheaper and product is cheaper to get in some of the countries that currently manufacture a lot of this stuff. So there are some industries that won't come that aren't coming back here, and that's fine. Uh, there are others, though, where maybe we could make some inroads. And when it comes to the automotive industry, notice the way that when when notice the way the media covered things when Obama, in a very uh, Caesar-like, I hesitate to say cesarean because that everyone always thinks of the you know the special way that babies are are born. Uh, but the Caesar, Caesar-like, therefore, like the salad, the, the Caesar-like way that Obama decided to save the auto industry because it would look good, or save a few companies, in, save a few major American automotive companies, what he really did was just prevent them from going through a normal bankruptcy proceeding. The bondholders who were supposed to get money back first were in violation of contract, in violation of understood law, pushed to the side the... American taxpayer uh, bailed out the United Auto Workers Union and others, and there was some stabilization of the auto industry that occurred. But you could have done a structured bankruptcy that would have gotten rid of, oh, that's right, some of the labor contracts that were in place and brought them more into line with competitive wages. The, the way that it was sold to us, though, is, you know, Obama with a cape on his shoulders and a big S on his chest, flew in, saved the auto industry. He's awesome. Bin Laden is dead and GM is alive. Rah, rah. Uh, I saw zero. I was watching Zero Dark Thirty last night with my uh, brother and really good movie. I think it's very well done. I really enjoy it. People always ask me what's the best movie you've ever seen about the CIA. Zero Dark Thirty for me. It's the only one that even gets it vaguely right. Until I know somebody in the agency who who actually has a watch with a laser in it that can cut through steel like butter. Uh, most of those movies don't really appeal to me all that much, or they're in the realm of fantasy. I mean, James Bond is about as realistic as The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is awesome, and James Bond has made a few good movies, but in terms of realism, they might as well have Legolas and the elves joining alongside 007 while he's battling foreign terrorists. Uh, where was I? I just completely went off the I just went off the rails on myself. Oh yeah, Trump in the auto industry. He's meeting with automakers. This just happened and he had this to say. Share it please. We're bringing manufacturing back to the United States big league. We're reducing taxes very substantially and we're reducing unnecessary regulations. And we want regulations, but we want real regulations that mean something. Uh, 
Mark and I were together yesterday, and I think we understand that. We're going to make the process much more simple for the auto companies and for everybody else that wants to do business in the United States. I think you're going to find this to be from very inhospitable to extremely hospitable. Uh, I think we'll go down as one of the most friendly countries. And right now it's not. I mean, I have friends that uh, want to build in the United States. They go many, many years, and then they can't get their environmental permit over something that nobody ever heard of before. And it's absolutely crazy. And I am, to a large extent, an environmentalist. I believe in it. But it's out of control. And we're going to make a very short process. All right. A part of this, a piece of this that Trump's talking about is tax reform. So why don't we get somebody on who looks at tax reform all the time? We've got Grover Norquist on the line. He's the president of Americans for Tax Reform taxpayer advocacy group he founded in 1985 at president reagan's request grover good to have you thanks for calling in buck thank you absolutely all right so trump is saying he's going to make things better for industry via the tax code how can he do this and do you think he will do this uh he will do it for two reasons one he put out a very good tax proposal during uh the debates and there were 15 16 fine proposals he led the pack because he said the, the corporate tax, which is 35 percent in the United States, and the European average is 23, and we have state taxes on top, state corporate income taxes. So it's really, we're really at 40 percent European averages, 23. He said we're going to take the federal law to 15, and that would make the United States supercharged when it comes to competition. Now, the Republicans in the House had been working on something, too. They had it at 25 and they, as soon as 15 came out, they went to 20. So the House has been moving towards Trump's 15%. Uh, it'll be somewhere between 15 and 20. Uh, and then uh, Trump took a look at a very good idea in the House package, which is going to full expensing so that business investment doesn't get depreciated over 5, 10, 20 years, but you expense it in year one. Tremendously reduces the cost of new investment and will help uh, create more jobs in the United States. So the Trump House Republican package that's now coming together, they've been moving towards each other for eight months now as they take the best out of each side. You're going to see full expensing, which will be a real shot in the arm on investment and plant and equipment, and the lower corporate rate, not just for what we call C-Corps, like General Motors, but S-Corps, a lot of small businesses, they've been paying at the personal rate as much as 44%. I've I've got an entrepreneur in my family, Grover, who started a company from scratch, ground up, and whenever we sit around and talk about it, he's just like, all all the government does is make things more difficult and throw hurdles in the way. We're we're raising money, we're spending money, we're creating jobs, and all they want to do is tax us into basically tax us into submission, meaning they have to close their doors. They've got all these problems with dealing with the employment taxes and the regulations. This notion that the federal government is in any way favorable to small businesses uh, from an, from a member of my family, it is complete uh, horse hockey. It is nonsense. Absolutely. And one of the great reforms in this tax proposal that's being put together uh, now, and within 100 days, it'll be ready to go. Uh, out of the House and over to the Senate. So we're going to see this this year. This is not something that might happen. This is something that will happen. Trump is for it. The House is for it. The Senate's for it. They, you know, it's a lot of changes. So they're, they're quote-unquote, details to be worked out. But 
we're going to have a top rate of 20% corporate. The individual rates are going to go from seven rates down to three rates, a top rate of 33. The corporate, the business rate for individuals will be 25 below 33. And we're going to see a territorial tax system, which means we tax activity in the United States and not try and tax outside our borders, which is the way all the other countries operate. So we are in a, a very strong position where an American company will be worth more than a foreign company. Right now, foreign companies that do the same thing American companies do are worth more because they have lower taxes than we do. It's, it's, I mean, we think of ourselves as a low-tax country. That hasn't been true for about 20 years now. And the Trump administration should be able, if, if Trump wants to do it, and the Republicans in Congress are going forward with it, because Trump's not going to veto it, and they can put the bill, they can put the yes. bill forward. They can sign it. I mean, Trump can sign it into law. Is there a way that Democrats can stop these things from happening that you say can happen? Uh, no, because it only takes 51 votes in the Senate. This is all, people know that if there's a law change and to get rid of some of Obamacare, some of the regulations in Obamacare, it could take 60 votes. If it's a budget question, we can get rid of the trillion dollars of taxes that are in Obamacare. Obamacare is 20 taxes with a stethoscope staple to it. Um, we get rid of Obamacare. That's a trillion dollars abolished in taxes in a 10-year period, and then a lot of spending uh, as well. But um, you can do... Oh, wait, can I ask you, Grover? You've been doing this a long yeah. time, and this is important. Are, are you more optimistic about the tax situation in the United States changing in really important, impactful, and good ways now than you have been since the days of Reagan? Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. First of all, everything Reagan got through was there was a Republican Senate and a Democratic House. Tip O'Neill had a majority, and we were able to get two significant tax reforms, tax reductions through. Reagan got that through. But it took a long time. We gave away a lot of things we'd rather not give away. This time, the only compromising is between Trump, a Republican House, and a Republican Senate. Nobody asks Schumer what he thinks in order to compromise, because we don't need any Democrat votes to pass this. Now, some may come along. It's going to be very powerful, very popular tax cut when it gets done. But we don't need any Democrat votes. What we're doing is having a, quote unquote, deficit neutral budget moving forward, as long as it's deficit neutral after 10 years, um, it t only takes 51 votes. That's, that's why things can be done inside reconciliation that couldn't be done otherwise. And a lot of repealing Obamacare will be inside reconciliation. If it deals with taxes and spending, it can go. And we can even get rid of much, most of Dodd-Frank inside reconciliation. So how quickly do you we'll go over the last one for you? Because we're going to be running into a break here. How quickly yeah. do you think this can or will happen? Uh, Obamacare in the next two months, that that package will go through. And before June, July for the tax cut budget package. That's great. OK, so, and you're optimistic. Tax. Oh, yes, yes. This no, this this is looking very, very good. There is a reason the left is grumpy. They should be grumpy. All right. I like it. Grover Norcus, president of Americans for Tax Reform, ATR. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, sir. Good to have you. Thank you. Team, we're going to hit the break. Be right back. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Houston. Team, our phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Beautiful day to be alive. Light up those lines. Tell me about it. Or we can talk about the news, too. Whatever. Whatever you got going on. New York Post reporting on a follow-up to that story that was, I think the Washington Post broke it initially, although it's breaking a story that's really not a story. It's an interesting, an interesting conundrum. It's quite a situation, that is. FBI clears Michael Flynn in probe linking him to Russia. So we heard about the probe. We learned. We, everybody was Googling the Logan Act. What is this Logan Act of which you speak? Oh, it prevents a citizen from interfering in foreign policy making, which you could say that any news network on any day is interfering with foreign policy making by taking a position for or against the U.S. US foreign policy, right? Uh, anytime we have a prime minister of a foreign country on a news channel and ask them questions, we could be seen as influencing U.S. Okay, but I digress. Uh, the FBI has reviewed the intercepted phone calls between National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and the Russian ambassador to the U.S. and, drumroll, found no evidence of wrongdoing. Let me repeat that. Found no evidence of wrongdoing. Okay. So why was that such a big story? What exactly was the story? Soon to be NSA calls Russian ambassador. It's going to be talking to the Russian ambassador all the time as the national security advisor. Talk to anybody he wants in any foreign government, really. So why was that a story? Oh, I remember because it happened after the sanctions were imposed on the FSB by the Obama administration, kind of an 11th hour move to begin with. And the assumption was made. The assumption was made that it must be to undermine Obama's foreign policy, and maybe even that's illegal. That was the story that everybody was running with. You will recall, that's what we were being told at the time. Now, here's the thing about that. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, really. Now that Flynn has been cleared, now that we see that the FBI says there's nothing in these phone calls that was illicit or illegal, is anyone going to stop this Flynn is in the pocket of Russia? I, there's a lot of really harsh stuff being said about somebody who clearly is an imperfect human being. We we all are. That's kind of a nonsense statement. You know what I mean. He's done a few things here and there that raise eyebrows, but this is somebody who was the head of the Department of uh, the, the Defense Intelligence Agency. This is a career military officer, a general. We think he's a traitor? I don't think so. So why all of the insinuations that he would betray his country for his Russian overlords? There's a lot of that going on. And if there's hard evidence, I'll be the first one to say, oh, yeah, we got to do something about this. But it's been based on conjecture. And now that we have more evidence that undermines the thesis of Trump as an FSB agent, I mean, sorry, of Flynn as an FSB agent, maybe... We can start to see a change in the assessments that some have been making on this. Maybe. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is 
the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome to our three in the Freedom Hut today. We are joined by Derek Scissors. He is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he is an Asia economist and trade expert. Derek, thank you very much for calling. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I know you've got a piece here on the Trans-Pacific Partnership at AEI.org, grading the Trans-Pacific Partnership on trade. TPP is something that a lot of folks talk about, and Trump yesterday had the largely symbolic gesture of withdrawing the U.S. from it, even though it wasn't right, wasn't going to go through the Congress. You say TPP is not so great. Can you walk us through just if somebody has just heard this talked about but doesn't know anything about it, what do they need to know about TPP? What should the average American just know about this if we're out and voting and talking about it? Okay, well, let, let me just clarify my position. I originally said TPP was not so great when the treaty text first came out in November 2015. So this isn't about Trump or the election or anything else. It was just me reading the agreement. And my view of the agreement is, look, all these people saying it'll promote closer relations between the U.S. and Japan, and they're our ally. That's true. There are a lot of diplomatic stories you could tell. The U.S. should have presence in Asia. Also true. I grant them all. But if you want a trade agreement to bring economic benefits to the United States, which is what I want, it doesn't do it. It doesn't hurt the United States. I disagree with President Trump when he says, oh, this is the worst thing in the world. It's going to be terrible. And as you said, it's not going to go into effect. What I didn't like in the agreement was I want to see in this agreement where we're going to get clear economic benefits, not diplomatic benefits, economic benefits. I didn't see it. What what would it have done? What are the main areas it touches on? What Because now I think it's become an article of faith, especially for a lot of Trump supporters. And I see your analysis here. This is from December of 2015. You just when I grading the Trans-Pacific Partnership on trade is you just saying this is what I think of the deal, regardless of a Trump presidency or not. But what was this going to do? The Obama administration was pushing for it. Hillary was, I think, for it and then against it. Uh, what was this supposed to, what areas rather was this hitting on? Well, it was mostly about setting rules for other countries. We weren't going to change that much. I and mean, one of the things that, that is a key factor in, in debates over trade is the U.S. is already open. Most of our trade agreements don't change our rules. They change other people's rules. So if you're talking about impact on ordinary Americans' lives, I would, I would basically say nothing. No one would have noticed, which would have been a, you know, a big anticlimax if it ever went into effect. The idea was to get other countries to open more to trade, including trade from American companies and workers. The problem was there were so many exceptions that I didn't think that they opened. But if you talked about how the TPP would have affected normal people, it really wouldn't have affected normal people at all. So what was the Obama administration doing pushing for this thing? What was what was their what's their side of it? What do they think this would accomplish? Well, they're going to partly disagree with me, but if you had, without listening to me, criticize them, if you had an Obama administration official, former official, show up, they would not start with economics. They would not start with trade benefits for ordinary Americans. They would start with, this is part of our pivot to Asia. You know, we don't want to be obsessed with the Middle East. We want to focus on Asia. Asia has the majority of the world's people. It's got a lot of fast-growing economies. It's part of our pivot to Asia. We, you know, and they would tell you a lot of things that are true. They're not about economics. Then they would say there are 18,000 tariff cuts uh, in the uh, in the TPP, and a tariff is just a tax. So they're telling you, look, basically we're cutting your taxes. And again, that's true, but U.S. tariffs are really low. So they're talking about cutting the tariff from 2% to 1%. And you're just, and you know, that's not going to show up at the final value. Only part of that's going to show up in the final value of whatever you're buying. So again, you're not going to notice 
they would talk about this. If the Obama administration were talking about it, they talk about it as a very important diplomatic agreement. And I don't disagree with that. I just want our trade agreements to have economic benefits. And it's not just me. Six months later, the International Trade Commission, which is a, an independent body in the federal government, evaluated the Trans-Pacific Partnership and said, I, you know, we don't really see anything here. Is a lot of the opposition to TPP then, is it fair to say that it's really just tied in with the uh, surging uh, nationalism around the world and and it's a a rejection of internationalism and globalism more than, I'm not saying your criticisms of it, I'm saying the general uh, opinion against it seems to be motivated to me more by the sense that we shouldn't be in these massive globalist alliances or globalist entanglements rather than any specific economic issues or or are there specific economic issues that the opposition especially this the the trump supporter opposition points to in this well i you know i followed what the president said when he was on the campaign trail about tpp a lot it was very general um so my answer to your question is even though I said I don't like the agreement, I don't see what it does for us, I don't see any disaster coming from the agreement. I think the answer to your question is it's really about past deals. And really the number one deal we're talking about here is letting China into the WTO. Because if you look at when China gets into the WTO, that coincides with very sharp drops in American manufacturing employment. Now, it's not all due to China. I don't want to exaggerate. But people are going to remember that time. China gets into the WTO 2001. They're going to remember that time, and and they're going to trace that back in part, and they'll be right to trade, that we let China in the WTO under what turned out to be bad terms. It hurt a lot of manufacturing uh, workers and their families, and now we have somebody telling us this agreement is much better than that, and they don't trust that. The last really big agreement we had didn't work out well at all for a lot of Americans. And so when someone comes along and says, here's another agreement, and you say, well, what are the concrete economic benefits? And they start talking about diplomacy. There's a lack of trust there. And I think that's what President Trump tapped into when he was running for office. Are you are you referring to NAFTA? I mean, NAFTA is a question I wanted to ask you about anyway. No, I'm, I'm referring to China entering the World Trade Organization, which happened at the end of 2001. And I'll contrast it with NAFTA. Um, First of all, China is much bigger than Mexico. Uh, it's much bigger in population, much bigger in number of workers, it's much bigger in economic size. It's much bigger. It's also better organized than Mexico, which increases its weight. NAFTA goes into the effect beginning of 1994. Manufacturing employment actually rises in 94, 95, 96, 97, and 98. Manufacturing wages rise all those years. Labor force participation rises all those years. I think a lot of people who are angry at NAFTA are actually angry at China, and they, they, they're getting confused about – I don't mean people who are directly affected. They know when they were affected. But they're getting confused about when the, the economy seemed to turn against manufacturing and turn against blue-collar workers and turn against manufacturing states. Because you look at the 90s, the 90s were, were good. That's, Bill Clinton wasn't popular as president because he was a good guy. If I may say so, he was popular as president because we had a strong economy. The economy gets much, has much more on the way of trouble when China enters in the WTO, which is about six years after NAFTA. So uh, the idea of trade fascinating. I I think you're totally right, by the way. People do conflate these things. Most Mm -hmm. folks don't have the time to read in depth into the agreements and look at the charts. And that's I know that that is what you're doing. What is the the pro what is, right now, what is the pro-NAFTA case? What is the con? How, how does this really line up now that we've had this agreement in effect for, for years? 
Well, I mean, Mexico's not big enough to change what goes on here for very long. So the pro-NAFTA case is you don't have any evidence that jobs were lost nationally, even in manufacturing. Forget other jobs, because manufacturing wages and employment both went up after NAFTA for five years. Now, after that, China comes into play, and you can't tell what's going on with NAFTA anymore, because China's so much bigger that it wipes out all the NAFTA effects. The, the, I think the case where people want to be critical of NAFTA, and, and it can be productive, is to say, look, it's 20 years out of date. You know, we made that agreement 22 years ago. We didn't even have e-commerce back then. Now we do, and America's really good at it. Let's upgrade the agreement. Let's make it a better agreement, and let's negotiate for, for things that are going to help uh, Americans. So there's nothing wrong with saying, I want to renegotiate NAFTA. I'm, I'm, I would like to renegotiate NAFTA, too. We can mess it up, but, but I think it's a good idea to renegotiate it. What's wrong is thinking back to the 90s and thinking that American manufacturing was, was hurting that. It wasn't. That was a good time for American manufacturing. It got much worse after that. What is true and what is not when Trump starts talking about getting uh, or negotiating better deals with China because, you know, he says their leaders are smarter than us and they're they're doing all this stuff that that hurts us. If if you were playing the role of uh, of of Trump economic translator, what is he saying that resonates and what is kind of just uh, hogwash to get people riled up when it comes to U.S. trade with China? Well, what resonates is we do have leverage. That's the thing he started saying early on where no one was paying that much attention to him. And I said, well, he's right about that. Um, The main way we have leverage is China makes a lot of money off the United States. It doesn't as the president says, we gave them the money. We don't give them the money. We give them the money. We get something in return. We buy goods made in China. They get the money. They need that money. Um, a lot of money is leaving China because people don't want to do business there anymore. It's something that most Americans don't know. Um, so money is leaving China. And without the money they get from the U.S. Uh, in terms of trade, they'd have a serious financial problem. So we do have leverage. The president is right about that. Where he's wrong is that it seems like sometimes he's living in the past. You know, most people think that China was manipulating its currency 10 years ago much more than they are now. In other words, that's, that's a kind of an old issue. China, even China joining the WTO, I said it was very important back then, but you can't turn back the hands of time. You've got to deal with what's going on now. So we do have leverage. We've got to focus on what matters now, and I think the president is right about the leverage and not as right about what the main issues are. What are the main issues? Well, for me, there are two issues, which, which have been mentioned by the Trump campaign. They're just not emphasized as much as some other things. Um, this is going to sound like I'm, I'm talking about tech companies. I'm not. China steals American intellectual property on a, on a massive basis. And when you do an estimate of how many Americans have jobs that are supported by innovation, it's like 35 million. It's an enormous figure. So we're not talking about just advanced technology. We're talking about any innovation you have to make your company work better. It could be something somebody came up with there in garage. If it's valuable, the Chinese will try to steal it. Um, and so I think that's something where we can retaliate against China's intellectual property theft and say, if you're, if you're good on this issue, we'll trade with you, we'll invest with you. If you're not, you can't do business here. We should have done this years ago. We haven't. And I'm hoping that a Trump administration will do that. The other issue is harder. We like to have an open economy here. We like to have competition, at least we have um, since World War II. Um, because we think competition is good for consumers and is good for the country. China doesn't like that. So we're, we're 
automatically playing in di- different games. They want to come here and compete freely with our firms. They don't want us to go there and compete freely with theirs. And that's really a tough one to deal with because I don't want to become like China in order to punish China. But it's hard to know how to punish them because they're, they are being unfair without becoming like them. How does Trump succeed in bringing manufacturing jobs back or rather just cre- uh, creating an environment where private sector manufacturing can thrive more, uh, more you know, thrive more efficiently in this country. What are things that can be? What is realistic? What What do you think could happen? Can he make the automotive companies start manufacturing in large numbers here again? What's real and what's not there? I, you know, the way to proceed is not to try to go company by company every time they make a decision. I, you know, I get the point of saying. I, the president, the new president, the guy who just got elected, has taken office, doesn't want you sending your jobs overseas. So you do that a couple of times, it's fine, but that's not going to change national manufacturing. It's not going to bring back two million American jobs in manufacturing. The way to do that, the number one way to do that is tax reform. We do not have a good corporate tax system. The taxes are too high. We have weird deductions that people shouldn't take. Um, we encourage and essentially encourage money to go overseas when we should be encouraging it to come here. So. The the administration has a tax reform proposal. Uh, Speaker Ryan and the House Republican leadership has a tax reform proposal. There are probably some others there. Those are the two main ones. If we can get together and, and have a pro-jobs tax reform, meaning we want to create jobs and increase wages with our tax reform, there are other things people want to do with tax reform. The number one goal should be creating jobs and increasing wages because there's so many jobs created that wages have to go up. We can do that. It's possible. It's on the table. The government is able to do that. So to me, the number one thing to judge President Trump will be is, is are you going to pass a tax reform package, and is it pro-jobs? All right. Uh, well, we'll see if he manages to do it. Derek Scissors, resident scholar at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. He's an Asia economist and trade expert. Uh, Derek, really appreciate you joining today. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break, and we will be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Fake news. I got some fake news for you. I got your fake news right here. Scientists warn again. This is according to Time Magazine. Oh, Time, the same Time Magazine that had the guy who said the Martin Luther King bust was taken from the Oval Office because he didn't see it, but it was there. That same Time Magazine. I think it's competing with Rolling Stone for most laughable and least trustworthy news source. That's still considered a trustworthy news source by some. Uh, they have this piece out there that I'm I mean, it's not really fake news, but I'm saying it's fake news. So I guess I'm faking fake news. So sue me. Scientists warn again, French fries may increase the risk of cancer. You know, for people who like to write about things that involve science and to promote the idea that they're so into the science, the quote may increase risk of cancer end quote, headline, needs to be used much more sparingly. If you type that into Google, you start looking around, may increase uh, risk of cancer, you will soon find that 
everything pretty much causes cancer. Nitrates in food causes cancer. Bacon causes cancer. Uh, I'm sure, you know, somebody says dairy causes cancer. Stress causes cancer, although that one I actually believe. I think stress plays a much larger role in our health than anybody realizes. But there's just all that. So much stuff causes cancer. You know, what is it? Uh, different sweeteners cause cancer. Everything causes cancer. So if everything causes cancer, it's not particularly helpful to tell us all that it causes cancer, right? We, we can agree on that. If, if breathing causes cancer, well, well, you know, so what? What are you going to do? But that French fries would increase the risk of cancer. This just goes too far. Of the food weaknesses that I have, and and I'm a celiac, I've told you before, so that cuts out a lot of breads and pastries. Uh, But of the food weaknesses that I'm still able to have, French fries is top of the list. When you are really hungry and you get your hands on some really good French fries, uh, it's one of the better things that, it's one of the better memories, one of the better feelings in life. (laughs) French fries are the best. I go I go with all different kinds of I like french fries with aioli, not just with ketchup. I like french fries with aioli. I even go french fries with mayo. That's right, I said it. A little European for you. Yes, you like the french fries with the mayo like Belgium and uh, like France. Uh, yeah, don't knock it to That is a don't knock until you try it situation. A really crisp, perfectly done french fry with a little little dab of mayo on the on the end. Even better to go with a, a bit of a flavored aioli of some sort. Absolutely delicious. But I just don't like I don't like seeing this libel of French fries saying that it increases. Here's what they're here's the uh, the theory. Acrylamide. uh, Wait, acrylamide, I guess is how you say it. A substance produced when starchy foods are heated at high temperatures has been linked to cancer in animals. And this is the the UK organization, the UK Foods Standards Agency. Oh, hello. We'll go work for the Food Standards Agency and make sure, you know, our food's a bit fattening and unhealthy for you and, you know, not much taste because we're British. Yeah, that's right. Deal with it. So the FSA suggests that people cook food at lower temperatures because at high temperatures, starchy foods produce uh, acrylamide. Uh, which is the golden color you get or crispy brown color you get on French fries. So I'm assuming this horrible scientific analysis also then extends to hash browns, to any number of starchy foods that to uh, uh, what's the what's the thing that uh, in like Cuban food that people uh, eat the star. I'm forgetting what it's called right now, but it's uh, pl- uh, not plantains. Yucca. When I go get my fried yucca, they're probably telling me that I'm cancerizing myself. This is just, and there's a, a campaign underway in the UK to publicize this now that you shouldn't eat you shouldn't eat golden brown or browned foods because it causes cancer. You know what? We all take risks in life, and the risks that I take when I eat a perfectly golden brown French fry that's still got almost a little bit of sizzle to it when it's still piping hot and I put a little aioli on it. That's a risk that I'm just willing to take, my friends. There are some risks that we should all just, with open eyes, embrace. French fries, one of them. All right. Spicer, the press, the fight. We got that and more coming up. A few minutes. Stay with me. The Bug Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. 
dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, welcome back. Good to have you here with me in the Freedom Hut. So there are some stories that uh, I've seen. I, I brought them up earlier in the show, but I'm not. I can't say whether or not they are true. Um, that the Trump White House at the top level is in disarray, and there are rumors about Sean Spicer being replaced. The guy's been press secretary for days. He's going to be replaced. This is like lasting about as long as. Alec Baldwin had a show on MSNBC. So if you don't remember that, it's worth going back and checking. That was the fastest the fastest launch and unlaunch of a TV news show that I can remember. Uh, but Spicer you know, went, went on and, and did that whole thing about the numbers for the inauguration. And because I, I keep it real, I told you it was weird. It wasn't good. I'm not, not going to sit here, and I know you know this, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you, Oh, Trump, everything Trump does is great. No, and there's some, and you should have somebody, it's the biggest ever, period. He was, he sounded just petulant and freaking out. It wasn't good. Yesterday, it was almost Castro-like in length. It was as though we were listening to Castro enter hour eight about the sugar harvest. Uh, it was 80 minutes long. It was a really long White House press conference. And I had to watch the whole thing on set at Fox. And it meant that I didn't get to do the show. So that was pretty annoying. Because they figured it would go for like 30 or 40 minutes. Nobody thought it would go for 80 minutes. It was really long. But I will say that uh, Spicer had, it was really, it was towards the end that he hit a groove and started to make the central case of the administration's fight with the media. And I don't think it's one that they should shy away from. I, I believe it to be a very real and they don't always take the right approach, but I do think they should fight on this. And it was where Spicer, <laughs> it's where Spicer got his groove back. But you know, he did sort of get into his uh, into his zone. And I wanted to play the audio from it because it was an important. He got into some important stuff. Please play Spicer from yesterday. First White House press conference of the administration. Go. It's an overall frustration when you open when you turn on the television over and over again and get told that there's this narrative that you didn't win, you weren't going to run, you can't pick up this state, that's not, you know, that that's a fool's errand to go to Pennsylvania. Why is he in Michigan? How silly. They'll never vote for him. A Republican hasn't won that state since 88. And then he goes and he does it. And then what's the next narrative? Well, it must have been because of this. He didn't win that. And then, oh, people aren't attending your thing. Or John Lewis is, is the first person to skip his inauguration. Not true. And over and over again, the MLK bust, I think over and over again, there's this constant attempt to undermine his credibility and the movement that he represents. And it's frustrating for not just him, but I think so many of us that are trying to work to get this message out. And it-, it is frustrating, I am sure. I believe that they are uh, frustrated on this because they should be, because all along this has been true. This has been the case. The media has been absolutely, positively dead set against the administration. If you had to pick the special sauce, like for the French fries, no, but if you had to pick the secret weapon that the Trump administration has had all along, it's almost a paradox. The media's hatred of Trump has been one of the 
greatest assets and greatest hindrances for the administration. I think mostly an asset uh, because the people who don't believe and don't like the administration, uh, the people who are not in favor of the administration are just going to go along with all of this stuff anyway. They want to see anything that is damaging to Trump. And on the other side of this, those of us who know the media lies and know the, knows the media is biased see these assaults just piled on to Trump, piled on to Trump, unceasing and oftentimes inaccurate, and find ourselves wanting to uh, to say to them, you know, this is just too much. As I've said to you before, I feel like I'm increasingly in the bunker or, or, or in the trench alongside the Trump administration, not because it's like, oh, well, this is the easier place to be now, because I think actually a lot of uh, conservatives have chosen a third way path of I'm going to just criticize. I'm going to I, I can't stand Trump. I'm going to criticize Trump and going to criticize the media. But we also need to be on guard for the perhaps unintentional but very real dynamic of conservatism that does the work of the left without intending to. And this is a de- this is a delicate balance. And I know you get into some sensitive areas here because there are constitutionalists and conservatives who just cannot stomach them cannot stomach the idea of backing the Trump administration or finding themselves shoulder to shoulder with it even on issues where Trump is right. And I'd like to see more of I'd like to see that switch happening a little more uh, aggressively than it is uh, quickly than it is because this is uh, this is unprecedented those who are saying that the media's hatred for Trump outstrips anything like this in in history I think that is absolutely true I believe that to be the case and that means that someone like Sean Spicer getting up there He's got to be on his game, and he what on the weekend? I know they're saying that Trump. Put, this is the question: Did Trump push him out there to say this stuff or not? Seems like because when he was off the cuff yesterday, and I had to watch the whole press conference. When he was off the cuff yesterday, he was pretty good. Did a pretty good job. But that written statement, it was the biggest inauguration ever. Period, was playing right into the media game of these are clowns. They don't know what they're doing. They're petty, and so is Spicer the fall guy for that? Maybe they're floating out there that they're thinking about replacing him just to make it seem like that was a Spicer mistake and not a Trump mistake. So Spicer is metaphorically falling on his sword with that one or being being told to fall on his sword for that one. But they're not going to replace him. We'll see. There's also some rumors. This is one of the things that whenever you go on TV, uh, you you just you want to keep it really simple. I've had to learn. I've learned this many times in many ways. You want to keep it simple with what you wear because, the you know, everyone's a critic, man. I mean. If your tie isn't perfectly straight, if your if your suit looks a little tattered, if your shirt collar comes up over your suit, which is a really easy thing to happen, especially people don't understand that sometimes you're you're going to be moving your head side to side and you don't know that because you're going to be talking to people to your left and to your right, and when you move around, your shirt collar comes up, and then you come offset, and all you hear from everybody is oh, "stupid idiot" with your stupid shirt collar. <laughs> that's that's what they say to you. Your dumb face, your dumb shirt collar, your stupid tie, and your stupid face. And this is the, the thank you, Twitter and Facebook. This is the this is the sort of uh, very valuable critique you get from the television news watching audience, particularly at CNN. Uh, so you want to you want to make sure you know what it's going to look like before you go on. And one of the things I think is funny is 
there's a there's at least a rumor that Trump is angry because Spicer wears light these light colored suits, <laughs> and the, I think the Post described it as an ill fitting suit, and Trump expects you know things to look crisp, and so that's one of the criticisms. And I feel bad for Spicer that one. I'm like, oh come on, the guy's wearing kind of a light gray suit. It's not a, you know MBD. He shouldn't shouldn't be held to some unreasonable standard on that one. Um, so yeah. Uh, I, I think that Spicer gave a gave a good presser yesterday. I'm trying to think of some of the key points. That was the, the best part of it was when he got into the war with the media and the siege mentality that the Trump administration has, which is warranted. I don't always think that they deal with it in the best fashion, but there's no question in my mind that they need to understand this is not about reportage. This is not about bringing facts to light and accountability journal journalists holding power accountable this is a concerted effort to destroy and it is well underway it's been underway even from before the occupant of the white house was donald trump his family and the administration it has filtered down across and throughout the culture of this country obviously not for trump supporters but in hollywood i mentioned that snl issue and you know snl by the way that tweet was yeah, of course, the tweet's really out of bounds, out of line, and, and gross. And the young woman's being punished for it. And as I said, you, know, I'm a big, I'm a big second chance person, especially for stream of consciousness, tw- Twitter or Facebook, or you know, people deserve a second chance when they cross, the, even 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 when they really do cross the line. Uh, that all said, SNL has been incapable of mocking Democrats for as long as I've been watching SNL. I mean, the last time SNL was funny. Dana Carvey and Mike Myers were regular, uh, regular players in it. That was when SNL. The last time that I can remember that it was it was actually a funny show. Hasn't been funny since then. Uh, so the the broader culture has also been anti-Republican and then much more focused and virulently anti-Trump. And they understand this and they're rolling up their sleeves to throw down. There are going to be missteps with that, too. No one's ever done this before. There's no playbook for a White House that goes to war with the media. There's no playbook for it. And I, I do think it is it is warranted to take an aggressive stance. I do like that they punch back against much of what is is reported that is clearly material out of a, oh, you could even say out of a dossier of sorts meant to chip away at the foundations of the Trump administration. And if they have to chip away at the foundations of our government and of our system in this republic, they'll do that, too. They'll undermine anything to get to Trump. Nothing is sacred when it comes to destroying the Trump administration. Nothing will get in their way. Very interesting. You'll notice that the Constitution has been cited recently by a lot of liberals, a lot of Democrats, as a means of trying to restrain Trump. But I wonder what's going to happen in the future when they view the Constitution perhaps as on Trump's side. You know, they're just going to say, oh, well, he doesn't have that authority or power. We should drag him into court or he should be impeached. Nothing is sacred to them. The only thing that is sacred is the pursuit of power. Trump stands in the way of that, and therefore they will destroy him however they can. Um, Team, I'm going to hit a break here. We'll be back on the flip side. Stay with me. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network.
The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So there was a DNC chair candidates forum last night. Just kidding, because we're about to talk about it, so it can't be that boring, right? But it's a little boring. Uh, this was hosted by MSNBC's Joy Reid and Sally Boynton Brown, executive director of the Idaho Democratic Party, noted that Black Lives Matter, and this all courtesy of Mediaite, hattipmediaite.com, and made it and it made her sad that white leaders in our party have failed. And then she went on to say some pretty interesting stuff. Please play it. I'm a white woman. I don't get it. I am pleased and honored to be here today to have the conversation. I am so excited that we're here. And I am listening because that's my job. My job is to listen to the issues. My job is to listen and be a voice. And my job is to shut other white people down when they want to interrupt. My job is to shut other white people down when they want to say, oh no, I'm not prejudiced. I'm a Democrat, I'm accepting. My job is to make sure that they get, that they have privilege. And until we shut our mouths and we listen to those people who don't and we lift our people up so that we all have equity in this country, so that we are all fighting alongside each other, so that we are all on the same page and we clearly get where we're going, we're not gonna break through this. This is not just rhetoric. This is life or death. This moment in our country, the Democratic Party has the opportunity to do something different. We have the opportunity to really confront the fact that we have not been in alignment with our values. We've been talking a lot of smack. We uh, need to okay, make okay, sure enough, that our enough, actions enough, and our- enough. Please, 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 please. I can't, I can't take it anymore. What a lunatic. The authoritarianism that is just dripping from her, uh, her little speech there. Her her job. This is. She reminds me of one of these kids that you you see trotted out in North Korea, and you have to read the translation, and they're just talking about the dear leader, and we cannot love the dear leader enough, and the dear leader gives me everything, and anyone against the dear leader must be destroyed because oh my god, the dear leader is everything to me, and I love the dear leader so much, I love the dear leader more than you. It's just. The programming of the brain that has been done, and with her, the the white privilege programming, my job as a white Democrat is to shut down other white Democrats who think they're not, to shut other white people down when they want to interrupt. So she's promising to be an ally of those in the Democratic Party. She's promising to use her whiteness to shut down those who do not accept that their whiteness is a problem. This is mind-blowing. And do you hear the way, too, the conviction with which she says this utter nonsense, just spewing this bile, this crap, this vacuous garbage out there. And a lot of Democrats, white and non-white, all together, would applaud this kind of stuff. They would say, oh, absolutely. We need somebody. We need a white person to regulate among other white people to make sure that they are willing to cite their white privilege and not allow their whiteness to 
overtake their thinking and let them interrupt people when they're getting white privilege lectures. There are really crazy people who are very powerful in the Democratic Party. And we need to point that out. Oh, team, I'm not in for Rush Wednesday. I'm in for Rush this coming Friday. Wanted to point that out on the EIB. Until tomorrow, I'll be here. As always, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.